You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 3. We're not going to be in Genesis today. Um, So as you turn there, we'll stand in just a moment. I I decided to take a week off of our series uh, this morning to deal with some truths. I think it'd be a help to our church family at this time. And uh, we we have some going through some very real difficulties in their lives right now. And we've got uh, we've got church members that are experiencing the death of loved ones uh, this week. And we've got some serious health trials in, in some people's lives and you wouldn't expect it. And, uh, you know, we've got relationship struggles in our church family. We've got some spiritual struggles. And you say, well, this church has got lots of problems. Well, I mean, every church is going to have people. And guess what? People have problems. It's life. It's human. Humankind. I mean, that's what we are. Um, Life isn't always easy. And when things are difficult, then uh, we it's easy to ask questions that don't have obvious answers, isn't it? It's easy to ask questions that you don't necessarily have answers to. And when those answers, um, those questions go unanswered long enough, you tend to lose some hope. And uh, that's where the world is, though. You think about that's where the world is. They, they don't have any context for life um, outside of themselves. And because of that, they, we live in a hopeless world. And that they think the answer to all their problems is going to be found within. Well, I don't know if you've ever examined yourself real closely, but I don't feel like I have any good answers to anything sometimes. Um, Life without context with God is hopeless. And, And you would think if you listen to the answers that our existence is purely accidental and our existence is purely by chance, and therefore we, we don't have a bigger reason. But listen, as God's people, I'm thankful we have a higher source of truth from which to draw context in God's Word. And I think it can provide some help for us this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, let's stand as we read this. Ecclesiastes 3, we stand in honor of the reading or out of respect of God's Word Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says in verse 1, it's familiar, I know, um, it says, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. 
I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken, taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. And I'm calling the message this morning, The Who Helps the What. It's not a Dr. Seuss book. It's not an Abbott and Costello comedy sketch, you know, who's on first. It's a play on words, but it can be a help to us. Hopefully we can make a little more sense of that phrase by the time we're done. The who helps the what. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we humble ourselves again before you and ask that you would use your word to make a difference in our lives this morning. We open ourselves to you, and I know I am right now. I pray that everyone else in this moment will pray this same prayer. God, I give you permission to do whatever in my heart that you want to do. And I give you full access to every corner of my life. And God, I pray that you would examine me and that you would speak through your word to help me become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Ecclesiastes tends to get a a bad rap among books of the Bible. Most people view it as having too negative a take on life, kind of like the friend that no one really wants to be around because everything out of their mouth is negative. Maybe you know some people like that. Many claim that the phrase um, that best summarizes Ecclesiastes is this, all is vanity. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that phrase quite often. You see the word vanity Vanity means breath, or it means light wind, and, and the idea is it represents something that passes away quickly, and, it's, and it passes away completely. It's, it's empty, and although it's traditionally believed to have been written by Solomon, there are plenty of signs that point to, the, to that it, it may have been written by someone else about the life of Solomon. We don't know for sure. We're not given the author, but the English word for Ecclesiastes means preacher, and the, the preacher is, is kind of the main character of the book here. The, the book serves almost like an end-of-life summary on the emptiness and the vanity of life when we forsake God and we live for the pleasures of life. That's kind of the commentary here. And, and I, I sometimes think it's in, in reading this, um, you might think it's just all doom and gloom and it can be easy to miss the conclusions that the preacher comes to. Yes, he spends lots of time about everything being vanity and everything being empty and everything being temporary and short-lived, but it brings him to the right conclusions. You you see, built into the heart of, of every man is a desire to live life that has meaning. And I'm going to say that again because I, I hope it applies to you. Built into the heart of every man and every woman and every child is a desire to live a life that has meaning to it. You, you don't want to invest your life into things that in the end don't matter. And that's what Ecclesiastes examines, all the activities and all the work of men that are in essence vain attempts at gaining worth through wealth and pleasure and fame and accomplishments and power and knowledge and and all of those things, if they are attempted by men without any context of God, 
they are vain. They are empty. And that's the conclusion the preacher comes to in the book of Ecclesiastes. He doesn't simply say, all is vanity, and you must walk away with your head down and no hope. No, he says, all is vanity, nothing matters except when you live life in context with God. See, he says, you must abandon, and I like the way this came out, so I'm going to read it. You must abandon your attempts at self-importance and accept with fear and trembling your dependence on God. Because apart from him, it really doesn't matter. See, folks, it is the, it's only in the context of God that our lives have meaning. Otherwise, all really is vanity. Joseph Wood Crutch, he's a professor of English at Columbia University in the mid-20th century. He wrote this. Uh, there is no reason to suppose that a man's life has any more meaning than the life of the humblest insect that crawls from one annihilation to another. Without God, that's where you end up. That's, that's how little hope there is in the, in, the, in the mankind being the fixer of life. And that's how desperate we get when we don't understand life in relation to our creator. That's the indicator of how low we get when we lose sight of God. Without him, all is hopeless because our limited humanity doesn't have answers to the toughest questions. We just don't. We have to come to the realization that God is the master orchestrator he is sovereign and he is, he is at work in your life. We answer to him. And we have to come to terms with the fact that our lives only have meaning in connection with God's plans. That's when we start to see things differently. And many people will bow up and they'll get stiff-necked and they'll get hard when they hear that we should live in subjection to God. But my prayer this morning is even like blessed assurance all is at rest. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. When you realize that God really is the best one in whom your life should be controlled by, uh, then you start to realize that perfect submission to that is easy. Because I don't have control anyway. I, I don't have the answers anyway. So perfect submission, all is at rest. When I perfectly submit and I come under his, his authority in my life, that's when we finally start to see things clearly. And my, my prayer for you this morning is that we can see some things that will help us appreciate the fact that he's in control. And even be grateful for the fact that he's in control. And that he can use our difficulties and he can use our circumstances for his purposes. And the first thought I'd, I'd like to consider is, is found in these first eight verses, and that is that most life circumstances are beyond our control. Most of our life circumstances are not things we have any control of. Many of us, whether we admit it or not, we like control. Any self-proclaimed control freaks in here? The kind of person that, yeah, you want a job done, but because you want to make sure it gets done right, you just do it yourself? Those kind of people, control freaks, you know. And I'm not trying to be trite about it. I mean, that's what they call them. And there's many of us in this room. And although we like to think we're the ones calling the life's shots, we have constant reminders that we're not. I mean, verse 1 lays the groundwork here in chapter 3 that the major events and activities uh, in the human experience are outside our control. And he gives 14 statements of contrast here. 
So he says again in verse 1, to everything there's a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. It says a time to be born and a time to die. And, and I'm not going to spend lots of time on these because the, the point of this passage, I mean, these, these are poetic and they, they flow well. And um, in case you thought these were originally song lyrics from a song in the 60s, they're not. They were in the Bible first. This is poetic, but it's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage comes later, so I'm going to move through these pretty quickly. He says there's a time to be born and a time to die. The two most momentous events in a, of a human life are mentioned first. You've got birth and you've got death, and listen, both are under God's control. Birth and death are not accidents. They are divine appointments, which means we ought to be careful to take matters of birth and death into our own hands. We don't choose when a soul is born. It's dangerous for men to think that we're in control enough to decide when someone or who's worthy of being born or who's not. It's also not in our control to say, well, this person, it's time for this one to die and this one not to. No, those are God's controls. It's not in our place to take the, the, the control of those things, birth and life. He says a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. This is related to the first part of the verse, though obviously less important in that men may plow and men may sow, but only God can give the increase. Bearing fruit is outside of our control. We can do everything right, and yet if God doesn't do his part, we don't make plants grow. We don't make the flowers grow. We don't make our garden produce. That is God doing the work. He says in verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. There's a time to destroy, kill and break down. And there's a time to create or make better. That's the time to heal and build up. And whether it's a human life or it's a city or it's a government or it's a nation, there are times beyond our control when we witness destruction and we witness restoration. We don't always have the choice of when it happens. It just happens. In verse 4, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. This verse conveys emotion. There's a time to cry and it's appropriate. There's a time to laugh. And usually the time to laugh always comes in church when you're not supposed to be laughing. You can't control it. Well, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. And it's perfectly appropriate to have those emotions. There are times of weeping. There are times of mourning. There's, those are natural response to sorrow. And then again, there are times of laughter and there are times of joy. And we don't get to determine the times and seasons when we laugh and cry. Yeah, you may force yourself not to laugh or force yourself not to cry, but you don't get to control the times and seasons that put you in the position to laugh and cry. There's a time in verse 5 to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. And this one's harder to interpret it. It could be another agricultural illustration. It could be a wartime analogy. Either way, whether we use stones for good or we use stones for bad, we can't control the fact that they're there. Stones are there. Sometimes they're a help. Sometimes they're in the way. Again, verse 5, it says a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And, and I'm not going to give them, this one much time. The first half is for huggers and the sef, second half is not. No, not really. I, I was hoping maybe that was a time to laugh, but no. There's a time to hold on to something and there's a time sometimes to let it go. 
Verse 6, a time to get, a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away. And financially speaking, there's prosperity sometimes, but there are also stock market crashes. You don't control it. We don't have control. They're not under our power. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Verse 7, a time to rend and a time to sow. Clothes wear out. Sometimes they're worth repairing. Sometimes you cut your losses and let it go. Again in verse 7, there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. There are times when you have no words and you can't say anything and you don't know what to say. And it's a good thing because you, a good thing you're not speaking because anything that comes out wouldn't be the right thing to say. But there are times when something needs to be said. Verse 8, there's a time to love and a time to hate. And he's not saying in verse 8, listen, this is not a list of things for us to do, by the way. He's not saying, hey, listen, there's a time where you should love, but there's a time where you should hate. No, it's not a passage of obedience or right or wrong. The preacher is simply saying these things happen in life. And though you may want to, you don't control them. There are plenty of times in life that are full of love, but there are plenty of times in life and in a culture and in America in 2021, for instance, that it is full of hate. You can't control it. It just is. Again, in verse 8, there's a time of war and a time of peace. And we may always be looking for peace, but there are going to be times of war. Again, this isn't a list of things we're supposed to accomplish. And it's not, I'm not reading these to depress us this morning and say we're just meant to float around in life. And and without any control, uh, we don't have anything to say. We're just destined to float around wherever the current, wherever the winds take us. No, it's a reminder that from before our birth to the moment of our death, we are not in charge. Events and, and seasons of time are imposed upon us. We don't choose the things in verses 2 through 8. We don't choose the seasons. We don't pick the timing. One scholar said this, Whatever may be our skill and initiative, our real masters seem to be the inexorable or inescapable seasons. Not just those on the calendar, but that tide of events which moves us now to one kind of action, which seems fitting, but then to another kind of action, which puts it all in reverse. And that's what the point of this is saying, is that the seasons and times come, and sometimes it's perfectly appropriate to cry, but there are other times where it wouldn't be appropriate to cry. You have to come all the way to the other side, and now it's appropriate to laugh. That's the idea. It's a great summary. Sometimes it's this way. Other times it's the complete opposite way. And some people might tend to get depressed or angry that they don't govern every aspect of their lives. We live in a culture that people think, I'm in charge of my life. What I do, what I say goes, I make the decisions. And then, and, but it might pay, make people angry to think, well, that I don't have control. I'm not in charge. And when people come to that understanding, they might start asking questions like verse 9. Look at verse 9. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? What he's asking, in other words, what's the point? What profit is it if I don't have any control over the seasons, if I don't have any control over the times, if I don't have control if I'm going this way or if I'm going that way, what is the point? And this is where we transition from things out of our control to what might be in our control. See, God uses times and seasons to shift our focus. He uses the times and seasons to shift our focus. Look at verse 10. 
I've seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. That word travail, it means a task. And the Greek word for exercise means afflict. The idea is, that to, is to give a task in order to humble. To give a task in order to afflict. Afflict also means to be put down or, or become low, to depress, to be downcast. See, listen, what the verse is saying is that God's purpose in allowing the times and seasons is to humble us. Now, understand, it's not about humiliation so he can abuse us. He's not humiliating us so that he can, he can point at us and laugh and mock and scorn and abuse us and say, look how low they are. No, this humbling is for a different purpose. This humbling is meant to draw us closer to God. Look at verse 11. It says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Everything refers to all the things we can't control. That whole list from verses 2 through 8. God can make those beautiful. It means fair or handsome. And in this context, it means appropriate. And friend, God can turn the times and seasons in the midst of travail into something that fits into his big plan. He can make it appropriate. And we should have faith in that God is in control enough that every aspect of our lives is appropriate in its time and should be accepted as such. And it's easy to say until you get into the middle of the difficulty, isn't it? The challenge comes in the next phrase. And here's where we get the idea that it's not easy. He says, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can, under, can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. You say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, God has created within every man, as I mentioned, a desire to know the beginning and the end of everything we experience. But God has also withheld the solution or the answers to those mysteries. The word world means eternity. God has set eternity in our hearts, which means we are created, folks, and I want you to get the transition. We are created with something inside of us that gives us the capacity to understand spiritual matters, to seek spiritual matters. We're wired that way. Unlike the animals, we have a sense of something that is bigger than the moment that in which we are living. God made us that way. We want to understand the bigger picture. We were created to, with the desire to ask the question, why? I mean, I remember when our children would go through that phase uh, when they were, I don't know, a couple years old. And, and it seems like every single thing we did, it's like, why, 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 why? Because I said so. <laughs> that, that famous parental philosophy, that Bible verse, because I said so, I'll find it somewhere someday. It came because of why, 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 why? You know, and as, as, as frustrating as that might be, that is in the heart of that child. God placed in that child the desire to understand more than the current situation. He's placed the world, he's placed eternity in their hearts. God made us that way. God is, but here's the thing. God has chosen not to give us all the answers. See, the greatest challenge in this is we have the desire to understand, but God purposely doesn't give us the capacity to. 
It's like we're constantly thirsty, but there's no, nothing to drink. Or we're hungry, but there's no food. Or we're weary and we can't find rest. The preacher searched the world over to find something that satisfies the longing in his heart, but nothing helps. It's not about wisdom, he finds out. It's not about power. It's not about wives and women. It's not about accomplishments. It's not about wealth. These are all examples from Ecclesiastes. It's not about anything that he can find here. The preacher has come to terms with the fact that all is vanity apart from God. And we might think God is so mean. He put a longing in our hearts to comprehend the big picture, but he won't even let us see it. He put this desire in the heart of every one of us to understand eternity, and yet he won't give us the answers. But when we come to that conclusion, we miss his purpose for giving us the desire to seek eternity. See, God's not being mean. This is not a carrot in front of the donkey's nose just leading us along for his pleasure. No, he knows this. If we could find the answers in ourselves, if we could make sense of it all, if we could come to terms with the difficulties, and if we could see the beginning to the end, if we could understand the times and seasons, then we would start assuming we're the ones in control. We would say, who needs God? I have the answers now. You know that's how we would be. You know, we struggle enough to be dependent on God, not having the understanding. Imagine how independent we would grow from God if we did have all the understanding. Jim Berg says it this way, unless man with his natural sinful bent experiences some mysteries beyond his comprehension and some experiences beyond his power, he begins thinking that he is pretty much in control of his life. And in the process, he forgets God. Friend, I don't care how spiritual you think you are. If you ever got to the place where you had all the answers and you understood the mysteries and you understood all the whys, you would forget God. You would no longer lean on him. Um, We do that already. Can you imagine if you had the answers? Do you see the purpose then? God allows things beyond our control, questions that we can't answer, mysteries that we can't solve, times and seasons that make no sense to us, burdens and trials that we can't see the end of, so that we will continue to seek God. He longs, he so longs for our fellowship that he purposely withholds our desire to understand the beginning to the end so that we'll never feel as though we no longer need him in our lives. His motives are to keep us close and to keep us dependent on him. It's from a heart of love that he sends and allows things into our lives that we can't control and that we can't handle or that we can't even comprehend. Like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, about, he said about the thorn in his flesh, He asked God to take it away from him, but he said this, For this thing I I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said, Christ said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, Therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen, what Paul did is he transitioned that desire that he had to find and seek eternity. He put the world in our hearts. Paul stopped asking why, and he used that desire, the world in his heart, to seek God instead. He stopped seeking answers, 
and he started seeking God. And here's where we make the transition that relates to the title this morning. Is that notice what questions to ask and which to avoid. See, notice there's not a focus on why. See, God doesn't make that a matter of priority. And we, we may want to know why. And that's usually the first question when we don't understand. But we may never get an answer in this life. And if we're looking to understand the purpose of life events, then we'll drive ourselves crazy. The reasons aren't always or even usually obvious. So do your best not to ask why. That's not the question to ask. And you know what he says? Don't even ask when. Because remember, this whole thing is about times and seasons, right? It's the beginning of things and the end of things. This whole point in this passage is showing us that the when, we don't know when it begins or why it begins, and we certainly don't know when it ends. This entire passage is about seasons of life. But we're not told to seek the beginning. We're not told to seek the end. It simply says, accept the beginnings. Accept the ends. There's no use in focusing on the when because we don't get to choose. But we do have a choice. There's something we can choose. Instead, the writer says, don't focus. Listen, stop focusing on the why. Stop asking why. Stop asking for the purposes. And stop stop focusing on the whens. Because I can't tell you when it will happen. And I don't know when it's going to end. Stop focusing on the why. Stop focusing on the when. And it's time to start focusing on the who. In this case, the who is behind it all. And his name is God. Know that God uses the events of our lives to draw us closer to him. So let the one who made it all regulate it all. Let the one who made it all be in charge of all the times and the seasons and the whys and the when. Let him do his part. He's much better at it than we ever would be. You do your part and you focus on the who instead of the why or the when. And as you focus on who is in control, it allows you to respond the right way, and that's the what. See, the what is, the question usually is, well, what am I supposed to do now? What do I do? What what steps do I take? What what am I supposed to do to fix this? What, What do I do next? Well, look what the preacher says in verse 12. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. You know what the preacher says is the what? You say, okay, I don't have the why and I don't have the when, but I'm focused on the who. And now what? Here's what the preacher says is your what? You rejoice in God. You do good. And you enjoy what you do have. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How am I supposed to rejoice when difficulty comes? And how am I supposed to be, do good when the seasons are hard? And how am I supposed to enjoy what I do have? It doesn't make sense. Oh, but it does. You see, even though we don't know the why, we don't see the purpose. And we don't know the when. We don't know the beginnings and ends and how long it'll last We do know the who, and it gives us the freedom to respond with the correct what. It's the only choice we have in this whole process. See, the what is all we can do. We can't control seasons, but we can rejoice in God. 
We can't change the endings, but we can continue to do good. And we can't fix problems, but we can enjoy the simple things that God has given us. We don't see the why and we don't see the when, but we do know the who and therefore we can do the what. We can be thankful that God's in control instead of us because he can actually handle it. Rejoice. We can continue to do good because that's all we can do and we know he sees it. We can enjoy the simple things no matter how small they are because every one of them comes from God. And isn't it interesting when you're going through a trial and you're in the middle and the heat of it and those things that you used to take for granted, the small things, no matter how small they are, you find yourself appreciating the small things more than you ever would have if you'd never been put in that situation before. You, can, you, you may not believe it's true, but you can rejoice in God and you can do good for God and, and you can enjoy the gifts that God has given no matter how small or how big. It changes your perspective when you focus on the who and it allows you to do the what that you're supposed to. The fact that God gives us the grace to rejoice and enjoy the life we do have instead of always longing for what we don't have, that's a gift. See, look again at the end of verse 13. It says, also, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. And so while we might think it's a curse that God has put eternity in our hearts because we never get the answers, it's also a blessing because it allows us to have perspective. It's a gift that God would allow you in a hospital bed to be thankful for blessings. It's a gift. And when you're in a season that's beyond your control, that you can still have trust in God. It's a gift. It's not a curse. The world says it's a curse that he would put something in our hearts that we don't get answers to. No, that's, we're not supposed to use it for answers. We're supposed to use it to seek God. To follow and seek and pursue him. Animals don't get to do that, but humans do. And it's a gift that in the darkest moments you can see the light. Yeah, he's put eternity in our hearts, but he's also enabled you to have perspective that that other creatures don't have. This moment is all we do have. What's past and what's coming aren't even relevant. The big reasons why may never be apparent. But friend, in this moment, the moment you have, that moment, you can rejoice and do good and enjoy the small things and appreciate the gift that God has given you to be able to do that. You can't control the beginnings. You don't get to control the endings. But in this moment right now, God, I can rejoice. In this moment right now, God, I'll know it's hard and it's heavy, but I can do good. In this moment right now, God, it's difficult. I don't even understand it. I can rejoice and I can do good and I can enjoy something, as small as it seems. Because, God, you've put the world in my heart. You've given me the capacity to understand something far beyond me. And so, God, I'm going to use it not to get resentful that you don't give me the answers, but I'm going to use it to seek you. 
You say, well, I'm just, I can't stop thinking about tomorrow. Well, that's right. But we're not told to focus on the when. And I can't stop asking, what's the purpose? Well, I, I, it's difficult, but we're not told to understand the why. If tomorrow gets worse and you never get an explanation, rest in this. You know the who. And therefore, you, choose, you have the option to choose the what. To make this moment the best moment it can be. To rejoice and do good and enjoy what you have. You have to stop being why-focused and when-focused and start being who-focused. I would say it this way. You can't change the past and you can't predict the future, but you can seek God right now. You can't change the past and you'll never predict the future, but in this moment, in this slice of time right now, I can seek God by rejoicing and doing good and enjoying him. That's all he asks. When we have no other answers, seek him. Rejoice. Do good. Enjoy the gifts. That's living in context of God. And look at verse 14. It says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it nor anything taken away from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. Listen, here, try to catch this explanation. There will be times and seasons. There will be good and bad. There will be easy and there will be hard. But the preacher says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Meaning, here it is, as if to say the times and the seasons, the travail and the exercise, it's all temporary but God's plan is forever. See, what seems like an endless trial, and we've been through them before, you've been through them before, they seem like they're never going to end and there's no end. But in God's economy, God's big plan for your life, that's a very small blip on his radar. What seems like a long season of sorrow and pain in, compared to God's eternity, it's very short. And what seems like the worst timing is something he's orchestrating at the perfect time for your good. What feels like a burden that drags on forever is but a light affliction compared to eternity, according to 2 Corinthians 4. Listen, it's all temporary. Everything we face, the death and the life and the, 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 uh, the sowing and the reaping and the time to be born and die and all of these things, everything that we face, all the times and the seasons, they are temporary and they don't last forever. But friend, God is eternal and everlasting. And live in his context And you'll find contentment and meaning whether or not you get the answers. Someday you will have them. Someday you will understand, but for now, just focus on the who. And he says at the end of the verse 14 that men should fear before him. And that's not fear as in like a slave that cringes before an abusive master. No, this is a fear that's like the submission of a child to his loving parent. The fear that says, I'm powerless and I'm helpless and the only source of strength I have, I find in God who controls everything. This fear causes us not to hide from God, but to seek God. He's the only answer to your questions. 
So whether or not you know the why, you may not ever get the when, you know the who. And in knowing who, you can do the what, which is rejoice, do good, and enjoy life. How sad if God does all these things so that we would seek him and yet we respond by pulling away. How sad because his whole purpose in these things in our life is to draw us closer and if we pull away, we miss the point. So I want to encourage you, if you're going through a difficulty right now, now's the worst time to pull away from God. He's doing it to draw you in. And you wouldn't want this season to, the purpose of this season to be missed. So I, I close in asking, what time and season are you facing right now? You have a health need, a health crisis. We've got some in our church that are dealing with that. And you could focus on the why, but you may not ever get an answer. And you could focus on the when, but you don't know the time frame. And you just need to focus on the who. And in focusing on the who, it gives you the freedom to do the what. Rejoice. Just keep doing good. And enjoy every little gift that God brings along the way. Got some in here and you're focused, you're troubling, you've got trouble with your finances. And you've got others that are they're struggling with a disappointment in your life. And you've got a relationship problem. You're weary. You're, you've had a major failure in your life. And you've got major guilt in your life. And listen, this solves every problem. Is if we stop looking at the why and we stop looking at the when. And we just simply seek the who. God didn't send the time or season in your life to defeat you. He allowed it for mercy in his mercy, so that you'd always have a reason to seek him. All he wants is your dependence. That's it. You could struggle and try to do it all on your own and grow weary and never fix the problem, or you could simply perfect submission. Submit to the one who has control of it all and enjoy that peace that comes. Use the difficulty you're facing to remember God is in control you're not. And though you may not have the, question, the answers, stop dwelling on what you don't know. Focus on what you do know. The best answer is that God sees from the beginning to the end, so I don't have to. I'm just going to focus on the who in the moment. And I think about songs like It Is Well With My Soul. We sang it last week. You know, and it, every verse is talking about something different. It's talking about when peace comes or when when the storms come whatever comes i can i can say it's well with my soul you know why because i'm not focusing on the why and i'm not focusing on the when i'm focusing on the who and though satan should buffet and trials should come let this blessed assurance control that christ hath regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul i'm tired of i'm not asking why god i'm tired of seeking questions answers to questions i'll never get you know that's not the point and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to try to bother with the when because this trial could last for a while. I'm just going to focus on the who. And by focusing on the who, guess what? It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. I hope you can say that this morning. When that, I mean, to have the knowledge that you are saved, it changes your perspective on every trial you'll face. 
See, in that moment, you're not worried about the why. You're not asking about the when because you have the who in your life. And you can do what? You can rejoice. And listen, that last verse of it as well. And Lord haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. You know what that's doing? That's, that's focusing on the world, the eternity in our hearts. It's not focusing on all the trials and the troubles around us because you may not get the why and you probably won't know the when, but you are focusing on the who and here's the what. You can rejoice in the fact that someday everything you're facing is temporary. But God is eternal and for eternity, you get to spend eternity in heaven with God if you're saved. I'm just telling you this morning, this truth changes our perspective on every trial. It should change your focus in every tribulation from the why and the when to the who and then the what. Rejoice. Be glad. Enjoy the gifts he gives you and just keep doing good. I hope it's a help this morning. Let's pray. Let's stand together. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. I don't know what you're facing. and I, I'm appreciative of the service Wednesday. I was able to listen to Brother Ruckman's message and in a similar tone, he conveyed some really good thoughts. But if, if you haven't done business with the Lord about some trial or tribulation or difficulty in your life, maybe you've gotten focused on the why and you're growing resentful because you don't have answers. And maybe you're focusing on the when because you think God's timeline isn't matching up with yours. But you just need to stop focusing on the, the, the whys and the whens and focus on the who. Seek him. And in seeking him, you'll find that it's much easier to do the what's that you're supposed to rejoice, do good, carry on, enjoy, appreciate the gifts of God. But it's all a matter of where we're looking. The who affects the what. The what is just to keep doing what we're supposed to do. The who is God. And he makes all the difference. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.